Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Afronomics. I'm your host, Albert Zufak, Chief Economist for the Africa region at the World Bank. We have all heard the phrase, knowledge is power. And in times of crisis, like the pandemic we are currently living through, this saying rings even more true. Timely and relevant knowledge and information sharing can help individual change behavior, can inform countries' responses, and can help prevent missteps from being repeated across the world and, most importantly, across Africa. The World Bank is often referred to as a knowledge bank, and we are doing our best to live up to this moniker by bringing global expertise and country lessons to bear in the coronavirus response. In African countries, that has meant taking what we know from East Asian and European countries that face COVID-19 a bit earlier and helping figure out what may or what may not work in our country settings where informality is high or where lockdowns are not feasible or not sustainable for a long time. This work continues in earnest as COVID-19's impact on Africa continues to grow. To discuss this and more, I'm honored to welcome Mari Pangestu as my guest on Afronomics today. Mari Pangestu is the Managing Director for Development Policy and Partnership at the World Bank, and she oversees the entire World Bank Group's knowledge work. Welcome, Mari. Thank you, Albert. It is such a privilege and really honor to have you on Afronomics, Mari. And you just took on this challenging job of managing director overseeing the knowledge work at the World Bank. And chief economist offices across the World Bank are part of your network of knowledge generation, dissemination, curation, and it is such an important job. So what do you see coming to the bank, Mary, as the role of knowledge in the work we do? Well, I come in from a background of research, and then uh, as a policymaker, uh, I continue to value research and knowledge in the sense that I'm a great believer in evidence-based policymaking. So the way I see the role, my role now uh, in the bank is twofold, if you link it to knowledge. One is to ensure that we have the right type of knowledge knowledge product, and th there are different types of knowledge products. You mentioned uh, just-in-time uh, advice, uh, input, or analysis, and there can be some others which are a bit more uh, medium-term or longer, which takes time uh, to, to undertake the research. But they all are intended to help the client countries that we work with to really get development results. And this is ultimately, I think, the, the main mission of the bank. And at the same time, the other part of the knowledge is how do we use what we know from our country experience and we bring it back up to the global knowledge and come up with, you know, some cross-country, cross-region best practices or experiences. This is what you would call global public goods. And also we need to use the knowledge to play a role in global cooperation leadership, because, you know, there are many things that we can do. We have convening power. We have knowledge that we can use to say, okay, on, on some issues, it can be done by nations. 
on other issues, you can take one that is very close to the COVID response, the production of vaccines, for instance, which will need global cooperation. Uh, and we, as the bank, uh, we have the know-how, we have the knowledge, we are involved with all the, the partners. Like if you take the uh, vaccine example again, we have been working with the health partners that are involved in vaccine production. And a lot of it was created in response to Ebola. And we're building on that now to use it also for the response in COVID. So I think knowledge plays uh, many roles for me, uh, but ultimately it is about, about development and it can be delivering in country. It can be delivering the public goods, the, the thinking that needs to happen uh, across the board about how to, to push uh, the development objective. And, you know, the, the global public goods side of it is we, we are there to represent the voice uh, of the developing countries. Just like the vaccine uh, issue, we are there and we, 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 we have a, a lot of global partners. But our main objective is to make sure that the vaccine will be globally accessible at, and, and be uh, accessible at an equitable um, and affordable price for the poorest countries. Great. Um, you know, knowledge cannot be, you know, more important than in times of crisis, Mary. And as you rightly said, um, as the world is battling this uh, no, novel virus, um, the World Bank has stepped up uh, interventions and uh, helping countries to really orchestrate a solid response. You know, uh, a, you know, putting together great uh, programs to uh, you know stop uh, the progression of, uh, of of the virus, but also build the foundations for recovery. Um, how do you see these two pillars of the World Bank, the knowledge and the operational side, working together to help countries orchestrate responses to COVID? I was involved in all the meetings that were related to our COVID response. The first uh, health emergency response, which has now uh, reached 100 countries. Uh, and what I saw was actually incredible to me. You know, I, I knew a lot about the bank uh, uh, from the outside and, you know, also as a client uh, previously, but I had never uh, seen the inside workings of the bank. And what I saw was actually very incredible. I think the, the bank works the best when they're focused on having to respond to the crisis. And what I saw was all different parts of the bank coming together. You know, the knowledge part came together to, to see, okay, what, what happened uh, during previous crisis? And we did start with the health crisis to begin with. So uh, all the knowledge uh, related to how what happened in past pandemics, including Ebola. Ebola was, um, uh, we, we, you know, as you know, the bank has done a lot of work on on, on Ebola, uh, and and actually uh, Africa, in this sense, because you had uh, many countries had already experienced going through Ebola, you know. So we looked at at that as the basis for identifying. Okay, what what should be the health emergency response? And then that is also combined with the early responses on people's. So you're protecting lives and then you're also protecting livelihoods. So in terms of the social protection programs and cash transfer programs that we need to deliver. And again, the bank has so much experience and knowledge on uh, social protection uh, programs of different kinds, not just the government uh, kind of uh, social protection programs, but also uh, what we call community driven development programs which work very much uh, at the community level. 
And this is actually where, you know, you mentioned that uh, Africa and also many other developing countries, it's very difficult to do uh, uh, isolation and social distancing when you are talking about people living in very densely, uh, densely urban centers, uh, you know, in rural areas, it may be a bit better, but, you know, densely populated uh, urban centers, um, you just can't, don't, uh, can't do isolation and social distancing. So how do you how do you um, address these issues? Um, you know, slums or, or urban dwellings. Uh, one one finding we have seen uh, with this crisis, and that came out of the of all the input that we got from all the countries uh, in in the first month of of this happening. With this pandemic, it hit the urban poor and urban near poor much more than the rural areas, you know, compared to, say, the financial crisis, which tended to, to be more uh, hitting the rural areas. This time, it's the urban areas that are getting hit the most. And there's a lot of what I would call people trapped. Yeah? Uh, those who, who are living in the urban areas for working reasons, who are working in construction, you know, the informal workers, they're stuck, they cannot go home to their villages. And then you also have the freezing of remittances. And these are kind of the big issues that we found as we are designing the policies forward. We use the knowledge of past crisis, but everybody's saying this crisis is different from any other crisis, but we can draw on some combination of past crises that are epidemic related, like Ebola, like SARS, like MERS, like the swine flu, and also the financial crisis where, or in the global financial crisis in Asia, we had the East Asian financial crisis the Asian financial crisis in the 90s. So you, you bring in a lot of the experience from all the different crises. But this crisis, we have to admit, we have to be humble that we don't really know how it's going to all uh, come out. But we do know certain things because, as you mentioned also, we look at what happened in East Asia, where, where the outbreak happened first, how what succeeded, what were, what were the lessons learned. And at the at the basic part of the protecting lives is really about containment uh, and, and testing, but balancing that with uh, some kind of level of economic activity. And if there is total uh, stoppage of economic activity, then how do you uh, have a, a short-term program to, to protect people's livelihoods, whether it's cash transfer or food uh, delivery and other types of uh, social program? And going back to the urban, the concentration of informal sector in the urban area, they are poor and near poor who have lost their livelihoods. What do you do there? How do you use communities to change behavior? And, you know, we have a quite a big and strong water program. And they always kept on reminding us in, you know, in these discussions we were having when we were designing the response program. Uh, you tell that one of the um, things you have to do to protect yourselves from the virus is washing hands. But what if you don't have water to begin with? And there are these really uh, terrible numbers about the, the lack of water, uh, access to water. So, you know, providing access to water, for instance, is something that, uh, that we also came up with in, in the design of our programs. That's absolutely critical, Marie, and, and you're so right. You know, we, we speak easily of washing hands like water was actually available for all. It's clearly not the case. And yes, you've made that point quite uh, forcefully, Marie, that we can learn from lessons of past crises, even if they are not identical crises. And, and, and just for that, um, you know, Africa has, having gone through Ebola, 
has actually provided a lot of lessons, uh, a lot of knowledge that was generated that we are now using to uh, refine the policy response. Just from my own office, you know, the Africa's Pulse actually drew on uh, the actual data from Ebola-stricken countries to calibrate our model to see exactly how uh, how impactful uh, COVID could be on real macro variables, you know, in a general equilibrium framework. So we can learn lessons from those crises, and that's clearly where the knowledge uh, aspect comes in into play, and and the link. Uh, which is where um, I, I, I probably want to hear from you a little bit more, which is that response. And the World Bank is assisting more than 100 countries, low and middle income countries. How much do you see learning taking place? How much do you see knowledge you know, exchanges taking place? And how well are we leveraging the knowledge for those policies to counter COVID? My observation, uh, it has been fairly positive. We have been very quick in, like when we designed the first emergency response package, I could see that a number of the global practice groups and DEC, they came together to, you know, look at the emergency for the health as well as the social protection. And then as we are moving in the second phase of response, we have a, a few pillars, if you like, what we would call the short-term uh, response to uh, make sure that we are protecting livelihoods and protecting jobs phase before we hopefully get to the recovery stage. So in that second stage, there was a lot of work being pulled together on social protection, community-driven development programs, and uh, learning, you know, just pulling together all the experience. And as you know, we, we are monitoring uh, what countries are doing on the ground in terms of how they're responding. And I think that's a wealth of knowledge so that you can sort of learn uh, from what other countries are doing. And then how the, the big issue was how to protect the informal sector and small and medium-sized firms. Uh, that That's still, I think, one of the areas where we have uh, perhaps mixed experience and not necessarily good policy experience in how to deliver those programs easily. But we are working with IFC, and IFC's concern is, for instance, the fear that the microfinance institutions will collapse. So, you know, we are uh, working at the small firm level on that front. And there are very thoughtful, not academic papers being prepared uh, for each of these uh, pillars. I, I call them pillars in, in our response. We've got one on the social protection. Uh, we've got one on jobs and firms. And there is one being prepared now for the kind of the recovery stage. And here we, we have still a lot of debate on how to ensure that there's recovery and better recovery. Everybody is looking at this also as the opportunity for having better recovery. And I think there's a lot of issues there, how to protect human capital, how to bring back investment capital, how do you come back to a, a better competitive and productive situation? How do you protect jobs and upgrade skills? A lot of issues there, but just on human capital, there are two issues in the, in the context of Africa that I keep on hearing. I mean, more so than other regions. One is food security and the other one is human capital. That's right. On food security, you know, almost every single meeting that I've had with the Africa region or with not necessarily World Bank people, but in the African context, they are very worried about food security. And it comes, you know, because you also have locusts at the same time. And as you know, we just launched our program for addressing the locust situation. 
which was really an emergency and a very urgent issue to be addressed. And then, you know, the issue of uh, spikes in prices, because Africa is very dependent on imports of food. And this is a very particular issue. And I think we've actually succeeded. World Bank has been quite vocal on not having export restrictions on food and not having unnecessary stocks being piled up in countries. So actually, the good news is that the price has moderated. But then you have the other problem of food security, that you don't have money to buy food, right? Or the the income of people have fallen so far that they are skipping meals and so on. And really what we worry about is related to human capital is uh, uh, children and women. And children, first, they're not going to school. Second, they may be not getting the nutrition that they need uh, right now. And the longer pandemic and the social distancing and the lockdown continues, the worse it's going to get. And the big worry is, because of the experience in Ebola, that when this is coming back to more normal, they don't go back to school. And after Ebola, it turns out that they didn't go back to school, and in, a lot of them were girls who didn't That's go back right. to school. That's right. So this is we are very. This is something we need to learn from past crisis. We must not let uh, this happen. So uh, we are very conscious about the protecting human capital and and the gender dimension. No, that's that that's essential, Mary, and and this is clearly part of that uh, package, uh, policy response package that uh, that we are all working on with countries to not only fight the, the health emergency but also sow the seed for recovery and sustained growth in the future. And you've mentioned, you know, three of the most important aspects of our strategy in the Africa region, human capital, gender. You've mentioned food and food security issues. We clearly discussed this as well in our Africa's Pulse. But one other element which is coming out of this crisis as being an important area of learning and knowledge, Mary, is the digital economy. I want to hear from you. What's your take on how important the digital precisely has become and what role do you see it playing not only in exiting the uh, the crisis, but in the future of Africa? I actually think it's a very, very important agenda and it serves many, many purposes. I do think that in the current response in terms of tracing, containment, uh, digital information uh, can play a, a huge role. And I know that Mahtar, with his digital team, uh, have been trying to work with a number of uh, African countries, uh, working with the telecom companies, to have a database that they can use in the initial phase for the containment and tracing uh, purposes. But I do see what I'm hoping to happen is that these uh, data and digital platforms will serve various purposes if you can link it to uh, some kind of payment systems. It doesn't have to be banks in countries where, you know, I'm thinking of the usual example, like uh, in Kenya and PESA, where the uh, telecom uh, number is linked to payment system. In cases where you don't have, where you have an underdeveloped banking system, a lot of uh, payment systems have emerged because the payment systems will also deliver the, any kind of assistance program, starting from cash transfer all the way to the time when you want to be able to help SMEs, for instance, where you can not just deliver, not only deliver, uh, you know, lending, but you can also be delivering capacity building and skills building programs that are built in or bundled with those kinds of assistance. And 
I'm very excited about digital, and I do see that as a huge opportunity for Africa to leapfrog. Because you can also think about, you know, you've had the health response, you've got an economic commercial response, and then you can also use it for education delivery and future delivery of health programs in terms of building up a resilient health system. But education, for instance, given that the learning we're going through right now to deliver online learning, this may be also an opportunity to leapfrog on that. But, you know, there are a lot of homework related to making sure that happens. And one of it is just getting the data. You know, how do you get the data for each of these countries? And then second, the digital infrastructure itself, before you talk about the content that needs to go in it. But I do think it's a huge opportunity and it will help us also in the recovery. I'm actually a great believer in the role of technology and digital connectivity to address the inclusiveness agenda. And if we did it right, we could really achieve a lot. That's absolutely clear, Mary. And and that point is fundamental because until quite recently, we were still hearing voice asking if the digital is not a luxury for Africa. I believe with COVID and the role digital is playing in helping countries to respond, I hope that debate is really put to rest once for all. Digital is going to be critical, as you said, for now, but also for the future, you know, in African economies. And the point you made on data is so crucial because, Mary, Africa has a huge gap compared to other regions and other developing countries, including those in East Asia that you know so well. That gap is on data. And there's more and more views that, Africa could actually be able to leapfrog also on the data side. Instead of uh, the typical household survey, we could probably be thinking of using devices, using electronics devices to actually do a little bit more high-frequency data to complement the existing one or even completely move to a different type of data architecture. There's no knowledge without data, for sure. What's your view on that question of, of leapfrogging in the data sphere and the role of big data in knowledge generation in the future, Mari? I think this is really the future. And uh, maybe because of the circumstance, we have an opportunity to bring the future to now. <laughs> uh, and one of the... Uh, one of the recommendations that will be coming out from the World Development Report on data is actually for countries to have a, a one data national system. Okay, because as you as you said, and everybody has the same view, you can't you can't do many things, so you can't change things or make things better if you don't have data. You can't change what you can't what, what you don't can't measure. Right? I think that's kind of the the usual way we try to uh, emphasize the importance of data. And and it is now uh, possible uh, to have the new types of data collection, whether it's uh, a digital ID system that is linked to your uh, cell phone number or to some payment system. Uh, I mean, if you, if you take India as an example, they started out with a digital ID system, which was then linked uh, to the uh, cell phone number and again, then linked to a bank account. Uh, But it was driven by government programs, actually, Uh, when they wanted to deliver social assistance. uh, You know, people were were asked or actually encouraged or, you know, people will open a bank account because they're receiving money uh, for for the social assistance. So, uh, again, this is the opportunity uh, for COVID uh, to, to do things like that. 
as long as we are mindful, uh, and this is where a lot of the discussion, as soon as we talk about you know, data that will have all your citizens on, on that data set, how do you make sure uh, people's privacy are protected and how can you uh, ensure that uh, with confidence that this data, there's data gov- governance around it? And this is, this is where uh, I, I think uh, what the digital group uh, under Mahtar is trying to, trying to develop is ca- some kind of like uh, the World Bank will be there to, ins- to, to be the, the trusted partner, I guess, you know, in, 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 in situations where the government's capacity or institutions are still weak. We could be there. Uh, we have the convening power and the trust, I suppose, uh, to to be the intermediary, so that uh, you know we we can give the 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 um, the structure and the governance to make sure that the data is uh, is being used for the for the public purpose and not for for other purposes. Because there there is that fear, um, especially uh, in for demo, demo, democracies, even in my own country in Indonesia. Uh, you know, there's always this uh, fear raised by uh, by the de- democracy advocates. Oh, this is uh, you are going to be able to control us again, you know, kind of thing. So I, you know, there's a lot of issues there, but I do believe uh, that if we if we find the right balance, uh, we, we can do it. Uh, but it, and this is again where the World Bank, with all its uh, knowledge, uh, can uh, and experience from other countries, can can help to to design. Uh, appropriate programs in Africa, definitely, and 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 that's that's clearly uh, an area where we are you know seriously invested. The digital uh, economy is one of the pillars of our strategy in the Africa region, and on the analytical side as well, we're working with the uh, digital uh, economy team uh, in the infrastructure VP. We collaborating with them on a big flagship report on the digital economy in uh, in Africa. What's your what? What's the program called? It's called the, the, the Digital Moonshot, uh, which is basically uh, really addressing the issue of uh, digital infrastructure, uh, where we are lagging behind in Africa, the issue of digital skills, the issue of digital platform uh, that can help addressing the issue of governance, but that themselves need a strong governance framework around, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, but also digital entrepreneurship, uh, Marie, because we do see in the Africa region the digital as a potential source of uh, productivity increase and, and, and job creation. So digital entrepreneurship is part of that whole program. And, and we are also uh, definitely working with uh, countries to implement the digital ID that you mentioned. And, and in countries like Kenya, We've seen how important uh, digitalization uh, can be helpful in this crisis where they have expanded their safety nets, building on the, uh, the digital uh, infrastructure they have built. So it's extremely, extremely fascinating, but it requires full focus uh, from the development community. And in the process, we are building data for sure. And, and I want to come back to that point on data. Because without data, uh, what we see spreading is misinformation. is uh, is, is clearly, uh, you know, the whole issue of information asymmetry uh, that that clearly does not help actually uh, generating the right kind of knowledge. Uh, 
So um, I want I want to get to you, Mary. I want to hear from you. How do we in this time of crisis fight information asymmetry, or or at least ensure that most of the information is available to most people? I think. Uh we we just need to do better job of uh, sharing data and i know that in many countries uh, a, a number of the private sector uh, are beginning to want to share data including like uh, like the 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 data companies and the uh, tech companies uh, they are more willing to share information because it just it can't just come from government but obviously the government needs to, you know, especially when you're talking about communicating uh, important information about how to handle or how to deal with with the pandemic, uh, you need to have accurate information, uh, whether it's on number of cases, uh, you know, which areas are what what you would call uh, red areas where there's been a breakout that you should avoid, um, uh, and and uh, behavior changes, uh, you know, how do you take care of your own community kind of information, um, you know, self-quarantine protocols, uh, protocols for when we start going back to work uh, that have to be adhered. You know, th- these will be very important information and communication because there's so much false information that, that comes out. In today's world, uh, there is so much information out there. Uh, the government, I think, in the first instance, has to, each government, um, and if you look at East Asia, uh, a lot of the successful countries that were able to uh, do a good job of uh, containment and then uh, in the opening up was because they had a very good coordinated government uh, policy and communication strategy. Um, that went all the way down to the to the local level, because uh, otherwise people are very confused or easily scared or easily panicked, right? So this is, I think, in the first instance. Uh, and then secondly, if you talk about um, the kind of data that we need, we need a lot of data. We need to know, you know, I, I always say, how do we measure the pulse uh, of anything? <laughs> uh, and I mean, we we, we probably have fairly good data on where uh, poor people live and where poor people are because a lot of countries already have invested in um, recording uh, the, the people who are below the poverty line. But uh, other than that, we don't have a good in, good information, like the informal sector. We don't have good information on the informal sector. So we need to devise ways uh, that can track uh, this part of the population better, as well as SMEs and micro enterprises. So I am not sure how we can do that uh, fast and easily, but um, short of, you know, you, you don't have time or you, and it's not very accurate to do the way we do surveys, but I think you could do a combination of surveys, but combine it with, with technology. And I know that um, Effie is trying to do that for kind of the economic actors in any economy, how can we measure uh, how they're doing, right? And then um, we are also looking, um, SSD is looking at how do we uh, make sure we we have early warning for food insecurity. The easiest way is price, the information on the price of food. How can we get, uh, you know, daily information on prices? In, in, in various developing countries so that we, 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 we can have an early warning system if there's going to be a, a, 
a price spike. So these, I think, are some of the things that we can do uh, quickly using existing information. While uh, in the medium term, this should be a big warning sign for all for all countries of the importance of having a one data system, right? In in my country, we we we, we had. I was the Minister of Trade and I was always fighting with the Minister of Agriculture in terms of the, the rice production uh, estimates, for instance. Um, you know, so uh, you, you, you cannot, uh, I, I hope that this is a good wake up call and uh, a, a big push for making sure that countries coordinate on, on a one data and, and improving their data, whether it's a, a combination of the traditional surveys combined with new data uh, whether using, you know, satellite information, GPS information, uh, drones, uh, uh, digital information, these all can be can be put together to be very powerful. I, I completely agree, Marie. And there you are touching on a very important uh, issue, which is the role of, you know, knowledge institutions within the developing world to mobilize enough capacity to actually generate that information and feed it into the policy making cycle. And I know this is an area you're quite keen on. How do you see us supporting those institutions of knowledge generation? How do we build or mobilize that capacity for knowledge creation and, and knowledge uh, dissemination, which are critical to promoting homegrown and, and home-owned ideas when it comes to policy reform? How do you see us helping? I, I think it's hugely important just because of my own experience where, you know, the World Bank has this huge advantage of having the knowledge uh, and having a lot of the expertise, but it is still the World Bank. And in, in many countries, sometimes it's, it's seen as, okay, we don't want to be told what to do by the World Bank. So you can't, you, you need to be able to work in parallel. That's how I always look at it. Um, that, you know, you also ought to be, and, and I, I, think, uh, I think it was the chief economist from Africa. He shared with us uh, at, at the chief economist uh, council meeting, I think that I attended, last week, that uh, actually in the case of Africa, I mean, the other regions didn't report the similar thing, but it may be also in the other regions, but at least in Africa, he informed me that inf- informed us that uh, what they did was they worked with economists uh, who are working in the government, sometimes those who are advising uh, the decision maker, like all the way up to the president, as well as working with local research institutions so that you can be, uh, you know, uh, doing research together. You can also be giving them input. You, you can you access to the World Bank uh, knowledge base, uh, and uh, and they also grow. I'm I'm actually an example of of someone that grew with the World Bank. I mean, I you can ask people back in the mid '80s. Uh, I'm showing my age, right? My my first. <laughs> I, my first consultancy job was a short-term consultant to the World Bank uh, on trade. <laughs> and I went around the country with two of your uh, trade experts. Uh, and, and you know, we, we did a lot of really good work and we did achieve some changes. And then, you know, I, I kind of grew out of that and I, I continued to have very good relationship uh, with the bank all the, until the time I was minister where I would also ask 
the World Bank uh, for uh, policy advice. I do remember those days, Mary, but, uh, you know, when you when you were uh, in that trade network and, and, and I was the country economist for Malaysia, I, I did okay. attend a number of meetings that you were, <laughs> that you were really, uh, you know, at the heart of. And and, and 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 also thank you for making reference to the Chief Economist of Government Initiative. Yes, it was me presenting that uh, at the Chief Economist Council. Oh, that was you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I found that really, uh, I like that. <laughs> it, is, it is a great network and uh, we are really leveraging it to build capacity in a different way. Um but, but, but also strengthening those research, local research institutions that are so critical. And, you know, uh, I've seen people go in and out of the bank office, uh, you know, like in many countries, they would uh, sometimes start working uh, in the bank and then they would leave and join other other institutions or they would go and join the government. So, you know, there's also a lot of there's a lot of capacity building you can do locally, which will uh, help the reform process. And because the person if the person has been uh, involved with the bank before, they they will actually automatically reach out. Uh, when they need to do the policy reform. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, let me come back to the World Bank, uh, uh, Barry. Um, in the, in, in the, the big portfolio that you handle, there are multiple sources of uh, knowledge generation. How do you see us uh, bringing all of this together and leveraging it for the good of the client? How do you see us strengthening collaboration within different parts of the bank on, on knowledge generation on the one hand and strengthening the link between knowledge and operations on the other hand? I think uh, we have to do a top-down and bottom-up process and hopefully uh, it meets, it, it gets, uh, um, it, it, we meet halfway and get a good outcome. So top down, uh, the, the experts and uh, the researchers, they, they need to, to be, uh, you know, uh, the global experts on, on various topics and, uh, and be at the cutting edge, if you like, uh, of the knowledge, uh, because, you know, things evolve a lot, uh, which, uh, may come late, uh, to the country or the countries do not have time uh, to look at the bigger picture. So uh, th that's that's the top-down. But the top-down also needs to understand what is needed at the country level. Uh, so they also have to uh, get input uh, from the country level as to what are the needs uh, uh, and what are the issues that are they are gra grappling with uh, on the ground. Uh, so you're always uh, struggling with just-in-time and kind of the longer knowledge products. But they're actually related. This is what I've been told many, many times, because you build up a knowledge base, you know, on various issues. Uh, and that is the basis for you to quickly come up with a short policy note that the minister asked you to come up with yesterday, right? So uh, I think they are related, but you've got to know where the links are and you know, you've got to know where the relationships are. And that's why I've been going around actually talking to, to regions um, and, and uh, I'm also going to start talking to country directors just to get a sense of of what is needed in the field compared to what we need to be developing at the global and uh, research side. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Mari. Any uh, last thought for our listeners? I think we, we let's be optimistic that, uh, that we can uh, overcome this crisis if we really worked hard to make sure that we are going to undertake the right responses, whether it's in the uh, 
containment, tracing period, and then in the beginnings of recovery, uh, and uh, take the opportunity to build back better. And I do believe Africa has huge, huge opportunity ahead of them. Uh, and we do hope that uh, we can be optimistic uh, despite the challenges uh, that, uh, you know, uh, the, the pro- many of the programs uh, and the priority is going to be in Africa, whether it's from a World Bank perspective or uh, from all the, uh, I think if you look at all the donors that we talk to, they're also uh, prioritizing Africa. And we really need to prevent the, the, the tens and millions of people who will uh, end up uh, being in, uh, in extreme poverty and reverse, uh, you know, a whole decade of, of our work. Let's all uh, work together um, for this, uh, for making sure that we can really design the right responses and uh, really, really work uh, with, with not just with the governments, but with all stakeholders. Absolutely. And I like that sense of optimism, Mary. We really need it at this time, and and we need it to really fend off uh, COVID-19. I I really want to thank you so much for being here and for sharing your views with our listeners. And I want to thank you for your leadership on the knowledge agenda at the World Bank and beyond. A reminder to our listeners, you can find all of our recent publications at worldbank.org slash AFRCE. And for more, you can follow me on Twitter at Albert Zufak to share your views, questions, and ideas. Until next time, thanks for listening and stay well.